0: Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. I'm Gretchen. Today we're going to bring you Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 16, The Calderfield Likely
1: Suspects. So thanks for coming back with us, guys. I know we've been away for a while for the holidays and the new year and, you know, just trying to get back into regular life and, and get out there again. It's given us a chance to do some really good research. It has. And, uh, you know, you know, all of season
0: one is going to be on the Texas Killing Fields. And uh, just wanted to do a little reminder of that.
1: Yeah, so we started out in 1971. If you're just joining us today, we go back and listen to our prior episodes. Um, we started with the murders that began in 1971. And at this point, uh, we have made our way up to the murders that began in 1980s and are focused around the calder field area right so with that i think we'll kind of start the day's episode with um what is widely believed to be the main suspect in the calder field uh killings clyde hendrick he's um to understand clyde hendrick first we have to introduce you to another homicide victim along the i-45 cul- quarter, quarter, and that would be Ellen Beeson. Ellen was a 30-year-old divorcee living at home with her parents in Link City. She was a secretary and um, lived in the area for most of her life. She was known to be very friendly, liked to laugh a lot, um, never met anybody that she wasn't friends with she was last seen in lake city at a bar called the texas moon at a table with clyde hendrick when the staff showed up the next morning to open they noticed that ellen's car was still there they were concerned enough to contact her parents her parents immediately filed a missing persons report with the police department and what is not uncommon especially for this time um was again that the police really didn't didn't feel like this was any reason to be alarmed or concerned that Ellen was an adult and if she wanted to go off and be away then she had every right to do so. However, her family and her siblings were incredibly concerned. They thought that this was not something that Ellen would do Um, and also her friends were incredibly concerned. And then, um, so at that point, you know, it goes on for a while and and nothing's really done. And um, so there's a young lady, Candy, who's working um, at the bar and hanging out in that area. And she begins to question Clyde and talk to him and try to get information from him. And I guess through that, they also develop a romantic relationship. Um, I don't know about you, but if I thought somebody had done something to my friend, I don't know if I'm going to develop a romantic relationship with them, but she uh, she must have found enough in, in him to develop a romantic relationship. She continues to question Clyde back and forth, asking him what happened to Ellen, you know, does he know, and finally one night he says, fine, I'll just take you to her body and um so they drive out to kind of a deserted area um and he shows her a couch with tires on top and picks up the couch and under the couch are ellen's roommates at that point i would have hightailed it out of there we <laughs> so, will not be romantic i think he explained to um candy that this was an accident you know something that he didn't mean to was. do and she believed him you know um she's in a relationship with him so obviously she trusts him enough to um believe what he's saying but um or she's scared to death and and that that does definitely come into place too i mean she uh says that clyde uh threatened her several times and told her that he would kill her if she went to the police or if she told anybody um obviously if you've just seen you know, the body of somebody, that's a valid concern. I mean, sure. I can't say that it's not. And then what happens is her apartment, she breaks up with him, her apartment gets ransacked. And I think, you know, a little bit of a protective factor um, or just, you know, that's kind of the last straw. She goes ahead and goes to the police. And on July 7th, 1985, her body was discovered wedged underneath the old couch on the side of the old causeway road, um, on old Galveston road. So if you're familiar with the league city area, um, this is the causeway that goes into Galveston and Galveston road. Um, and so please discover her body, contact her parents, you know, who are given the devastating news that their daughter is gone and, um, And understandably, they're angry that police have done nothing really to help out in this case. And Clyde tells this story about how he and Ellen had left the bar that night and she had decided that she wanted to go skinny dipping. And so they went to this uh, pond and she took off her clothes and went skinny dipping and he uh, remained in the truck. and then when it was time to go, he got out of the truck and noticed that Ellen's body was floating in the in the um, water. Clyde simply said he panicked when he discovered her body floating in the water. He attempted to give her CPR, and then he put her in the truck and drove around for a while thinking that he was gonna go to a hospital and um, then decided that she was dead. And so he found the trash along the side of the road when he got out to take a piss and pulled her body out of the truck and picked up the couch, piled the couch and the tires and some other debris on her and left her there. He does claim that he stated that he called his sister and asked for help, but his sister told him that he was just having a bad dream. Yeah. Right. Um, and then um, he he basically says, you know, this is an accident. And so her body is removed and taken to the Galveston County uh, Medical Examiner's Office. The medical examiner does an exam of, of her and says that he can find no findings of anything to state that um, Clyde's story was false. You know, there's no trauma to her body or anything like that. Um, Obviously with a state of body in the state of decomposition, there wouldn't be trauma that you could visually see on her skin or anything like that. So, um, what he's basically stating is he didn't see any trauma on her bones. Right. (laughs) And, uh, so the problem becomes, you know, what do you do with that? So the police actually charge him with, um, They charge him with abuse of a corpse so and he is given a year in jail and a two thousand dollar fine and at the time one of the prosecutors in that case said that clyde was a sick person he had been accused of raping a 14 year old girl earlier right and um but you know that that was all they felt like they could charge him with at the time it was it was about the time Clyde's trial was about the time that Laura Miller and Jane Doe's body were discovered and I Jane Doe's body was discovered off of Calderfield we know that she's later identified as Audrey Cook but the time period of his trial is around the time period that they are discovered um But at that point, nobody really felt like there was any connection between Clyde and Laura Miller. It wasn't until a few years later when a friend of Laura Miller's came forward and stated that Clyde, who did live down the street from the Millers, when they lived in Dickinson, not when they moved to League City, but when they moved, lived in Dickinson, that Clyde had actually sold Laura Miller pot. Right. And, um, and then through that, it also comes out that Clyde was a patron at a bar that Heidi worked for. Um, again, I do think, you know, there are a lot of bars in, you know, there are a lot of patrons. And, and, and that's
0: Heidi Villarreal.
1: Heidi Villarreal, yeah. yes. Who was the first victim who was found on, um, in Calderfield. Right. So before... Laura Miller and Audrey Cooker found out there in
0: Calderfield. So, what that's saying is that she also purchased marijuana from. Well, well
1: I don't know that that it's saying that nobody actually came forward and okay. said that she had purchased marijuana. Just that he was known to patronize that same bar, bar. where she worked. I think the connection that they're trying <clears throat> to make there is that she would have known him.
0: Like from if he, yeah, scene. It,
1: yeah, if he mm-hmm. came up came up and said, hi, she would have at least known who he was. Like, oh, Clyde, you know, he drank such and such beer. Or yeah. Whatever, right? And so if you think about that, so she's out in Lake city using a payphone, and maybe, I think the scenario is that maybe he pulls up and says, Hey, do you need a ride? She would maybe feel comfortable accepting a ride from him because she knew him. Right. Um, and then the same also may be true of Laura Miller is that she's out there using that payphone at that same location. location. Clyde pulls up, um and if she has indeed purchased pot from him before or talked to him in their neighborhood in Dickinson and he says hey I'm headed home to Dickinson can I give you a ride that maybe she'd feel comfortable enough to be like okay well I know this guy Mm -hmm. um and and maybe you know certainly I think it's in the realm of possibility right it wasn't until around um the the Um, early 2000s that um, Miller begins to kind of press for police to take another look at um, Clyde Hendrick in the case of his daughter, and also in that realm of re-looking at the Ellen son case too. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is really driven by Tim Miller, who is Laura Miller's father, to um, see if if there's something more here. Um, In 2009, um, around the same time that he's pressing, they do go ahead and ex- zoom, um, Ellen Beeson's body and remove it and send her bones off to a pathologist in Austin. Now this is a pretty well-known pathologist, you know, um, very good reputation. And at that point, when he looks at the bones, he actually notices the bones are not clean. and. What the pathologist is saying is that you can't actually tell if there are any fractures or any damage to the bones if you have unclean bones. Right. Um, Now, was there a reason that they decided to send her remains to Austin for the second? um i'm thinking because the same pathologist was still in galveston 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 county at at least in 2009 Mm -hmm. Uh, a little later they he does retire but i'm thinking they were just wanting a second opinion and probably because of the reputation of this pathologist being able to look at things a little bit having the equipment having the knowledge you know it's it's definitely a guy who was considered a bone doctor Mm -hmm. um and so The first thing he does is, is have the bones cleaned. And then once he has the bones cleaned, he does notice a skull fracture. And one of the things that I want to be really clear about is what he's saying about the bones being unclear, clean is not that by being buried for this extensive period of time that they had gotten dirty. He's basically saying that they were never ever cleaned when they were examined. Uh, process through yeah. It. And, um, and then he says that the manner of death was blunt force trauma. The, former medical examiner in galveston county is adamant that those bones were cleaned and that um there was no trauma so if what what the former medical examiner is saying is that if you're seeing trauma now that was caused from you know after she died right um and there's a little debate back and forth that goes on because he the former medical examiner didn't make a note of of this fracture in the skull so what he's saying is that it could be caused by the couch being put on top of her but again if you had noted that fracture at that point in time and just thought that that was caused by the couch why doesn't it get noted right you know um But so it's it's a back and forth part of this that goes back and um, forth with these two, because that is happening, the DA decides he cannot go forward with the case. Mm -hmm. So um, and that's where it stays for several years. Again, Tim Miller kind of continues to try to push this to get more information, to have um, Hendrick looked at his own case to have this and he does talk to a number of detectives who do again, go back and look at this case again. And so when they look at that case again, the DA that was in office prior has now changed to a different DA. And with that change, that DA decides to go forward with this case. Right. Um, It does become the case of the dueling medical examiners. The unfortunate thing happens here is that you have the medical examiner for Austin that's taking the stand in the prosecution, the medical examiner for um, the former medical examiner who's taking the the place for the defense. And then things are lost. One of the things that they can't find right off is they actually cannot find her file from her autopsy. Mm -hmm. It's not at Galveston County. That information is not there. And come to find out through a lot of investigating and talking and knocking on doors, they find that this former medical examiner has taken that home. Isn't that crazy? Yeah.
0: And when you told me that, I was like, this is insane to me that those kind of files and something so serious can just walk you know, away walk away and then be mishandled right you know this is why evidence goes
1: missing and you know all things happen and the sad thing about that is that we see this medical this evidence walk away in so many cases yes but this one to actually have a person who admits that they took it home i don't know to me that's still you know it's not just that got lost or fell through the cracks or it was stored in the wrong location but somebody literally took it home and the reason that this person took it home was because he didn't want his case to be questioned. Right. You know, and again, that also brings up some really hard questions here. What other files were you taking home? What else are you hiding? What are you not being truthful of? Is there other, are there other cases that should be looked at in Galveston County that were under this person who is saying he cleaned the bones? And he he
0: also got so scared about questioning his, work that he takes it home and Um, hides it and hides it and destroys some of the stuff you know well
1: he says they're misplaced but there are 65 Mm -hmm. slides from his autopsy that are not with his case that he said well they miraculously you know have gotten misplaced somehow and then but obviously you've taken it home so we don't have any idea if he destroyed them or threw them away there is one photograph that is available from that autopsy which does show the unclean bones but like he said that photograph was taken before so how can you argue with that um and you can't prove it you can't Mm -hmm. you can't prove it but there are problems with the austin pathologist too you know there there are certain things that go missing with him their photographs of those bones when he first got them are also not with his file right and so when one medical examiner says they were never cleaned and the other medical examiner says they weren't they were cleaned all you're getting with his file is pictures of them now cleaned by him and so it's questionable and then one of the other interesting things here is that at the time the medical examiner's office in galveston didn't own their own x-ray machine so they would have to borrow one from the local hospital you know um which is just hard to believe that but i think still happens in small communities today where we don't have the money to give medical examiners the equipment or the training needed right. to do these things properly sure. but galveston even at that point in time is not like this is not a tiny small community yeah so
0: so what's crazy to me about that is like yes maybe they didn't have the resources they needed and it, but yes galveston it's not like it's that small but it's also not the first
1: time you know a case like this has come through their office no it's it's not it's definitely not the first time a case like this has come through the office. We've covered several of them that are going through the Galveston County Medical's office. And, and these, a lot of these cases that we're covering are unsolved. And now you want to say to yourself, well, of course, I mishandled this or, you know, now yeah, I am yeah. scared like, and I took this file.
0: How many more have you been on? And you don't think, oh my gosh, what is going on around here?
1: Well, and it definitely, you know? it also worries you about some of those other cases that we had hoped for dna possible evidence to be in there is that in your basement too <laughs> That's, it's terrible to say but you have to ask yourself that you do you know um and it's just it's shocking it is me. and then one of the other things that kind of comes out with that too is now you have this dueling medical examiner it puts into question other cases that he's testified in where people could come forward you know and have their cases thrown out and maybe those people are really guilty but because he does a, a shoddy job right i mean all of that can be overturned and
0: where you have some of that where they're you know maybe they are involved or not you also have the ones that are innocent and you know because of bad forensics so to speak you know they're spending the rest of their
1: lives in prison yeah i mean it goes both ways it does and um but that that being said i mean i don't have a whole lot to say about the austin medical examiner too because this is he's the top of his field he's the great bone doctor and even in his lab we're not keeping track of exactly all the evidence that we need there too and so um
0: and and really if you're, he's going to be on the prosecution side you would think he'd want that evidence you know a proof
1: well and if you're if you're top at your field it just really wonder makes me wonder what do we have that's at the bottom of the field because <laughs> just right
0: or what the, what why doesn't that go recorded or you know, you know and
1: this is not this is not like we're talking about the 1970s we're talking about 2009 when they when they ex, um, exhume her body right so almost all of the the things that we have in place nowadays the ways of evidence collection and like taking these pictures and making sure that everything is really documented well that would have been in place in 2000 sure, you know and um and to find out that you know all of this is still going on and he's walking away with a a mountain of evidence and his you know slides just dropping out in the parking lot as he wanders to his car it's just it it really is very sad, it is. Um, and then the other thing that does happen in this is as Clyde is awaiting trial, supposedly he told his cellmate and two other prisoners that he had had sex with Laura Miller before she disappeared and was responsible for the murder of Laura and Heidi Villarreal. These ac- accounts were unused, unable to be used against him in the case against Ellen. Part of that is for so many reasons. I mean, you you don't have any corroborating evidence with uh, this jailhouse informant coming forward, um, and so you can't necessarily bring this into the case. Um, but Tim Miller's family and Heidi Vireal's family were at. Clyde Miller's trial. Right. And so, you know, hoping that something would come out of this to give them some sort of closure in their own possible cases or some sort of answers, I guess, in their own possible cases, because I don't know how easy how much closure you can get when you lose love one. Um, but, uh, and for me, I, I do have a lot of trouble with jailhouse informants and, and I can't, one hundred percent say because you had a jailhouse informant come forward that 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 puts Clyde Miller on the radar for these cases. For me personally, I mean it 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 does give me pause when we're talking about jailhouse informants. Sure, um, but that does that's what really you know. Other than you know, we had contact possible contact with these two. Um, you know, it's hard to tell with Audrey Cook just because we don't have a whole lot of information there, but that, um, that Clyde could have been responsible for their deaths, but it does, it is what brings him forward as the, um, main suspect currently in those three murders. Now, when you look at that, they definitely only make him a suspect in the three and not necessarily in the 1991 killing of Donna Prudhoe. Right. Um, which, as a reminder, there are four women who are found in Calderfield. Um, and so then in 2014, he was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for the killing of Ellen. The jury had enough reasonable doubt and could not um, convict on the second degree murder charge. There are some there were some things that I really felt were important in the trial that we may not have brought to light. The dueling autopsies and and stuff really kind of muddied the water with this case, but there was a detective who testified about Clyde's confession, his original confession on Ellen and how she died. And one of the things that really made me think this guy, you know, should have been convicted of that secondary murder charge was when Clyde originally testifies, I mean, when Clyde originally confesses, he says that when he got out of his truck, he noticed Ellen floating. And what the detective comes back and says is that people who drowned don't float. Right. You know, because their water, um, their lungs fill up with water. And so therefore they sink. And that was what really made him, Take a deeper look into the killing of Ellen B. Son. And so for me, that that's a lot, you know, to um, that's a lot of evidence against him. But unfortunately, I do, you know, I think a jury's um, job is so very difficult. And when you have this back and forth, that's where they felt like they could go. So 2014, he's convicted, he's sent away and um there he stayed for many many years and then about two months ago he was released on probation and so he is out and again living in our community and so um but that's that's really all i have on uh clyde and um you know my hope would be that something could come and, and put this at rest he's an old man and you know it would it would be great if he would come forward and and tell what really had happened. Um, he has at least given a few statements to say that he was never involved in Laura Miller, Heidi Virel, or Audrey Cooks right. murder, mm-hmm. um, and that that that's that he didn't have anything to do with it. He also gives statements to say that he didn't have anything to do with the murder of Helen B. Son too. So, um, for what that's worth.
0: and with that and true to um the title of today's episode we do have another suspect and um his name is mark roland stallings
1: so after the trial of clyde mark an inmate at texas Texas, uh prison um begins to confess to the murder of several women So Mark Rollins Stallings was a habitual criminal um, in prison for assault and possession of a weapon by a felon. He went into into prison in August of 1998. In that incident that gets him, that sentenced him to prison, is that he shot a 64-year-old man in the face while the man was sitting in his home with his six-year-old granddaughter. So he was on the outside of the home and shot through a window, uh, hitting the 64-year-old man in the face. And uh, that guy happened to be sitting there with his six-year-old granddaughter. Um, How tragic. It it really is. Now, the 64-year-old man did survive, um, which is where that gets you um, for assault. And then he was a felon. Uh, dirt bag on some other crimes earlier in his life. And so that's where that gets you the, uh, the weapons charge. Um, But after this guy, why this guy's in the hospital, why this family's trying to, you know, figure out what they're going to do. They begin getting these phone calls that are threatening them saying, if you don't pay $10,000, we're going to, I'm going to come and kill the rest of your family. Right. And so, um, and of course, that's actually tracked down to Mark. Um, and the way that they make this connection is that um, he had previously worked for the family. He had been fired. And um, the person who's answering the phone kind of recognizes his voice, says, you might want to look at this guy, and uh, come to find out he you know, he's arrested and convicted of this crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and then while he's in prison on this crime, he um, he convinces a 55 year old woman to smuggle in uh a knife or a shank um into the huntsville prison and he uses that uh to assault a guard and to hold him hostage for four hours while attempting to escape that gets him a life sentence so at this point now he's spending life in prison in texas mm-hmm. And um, it, that life sentence uh, doesn't necessarily mean that he will live out his entire life. He would be eligible for the possibility of parole at uh, some point in time, but um, but that's where he was he was sitting when he started to be started to confess. Mm-hmm. And so he starts to confess to law enforcement. Um, and one of the things that happens here, and it becomes very confusing, is that. His confessions, in different places where I found his confessions, they don't all match. Okay, so the, the first confession that I hear from him is that he began um, killing in his 20s. He first killed a prostitute, and then he, he says he doesn't know her name. Maybe he does, He didn't remember. Maybe he never had her name, but he picked her up at a hotel, um, and that she was just... Skin and bones and a waist, um, and that. Then he drove her to Calder uh, Road, where he used a seatbelt to strangle her, and then he left her there. When he's making that confession, um, he's talking about the 1991 um, Calder Road victim, who is now identified as Donna Prudhomme. And the the one thing that really struck me about this confession from the very beginning when i when i kind of came across this was that when when donna prudhomme was not identified which she was just recently identified in the last couple of years but right. when she wasn't identified all you had was these recreations of what she would have looked like and when you look at them you know she's young and she kind of has um, a, a fuller face and, you know, healthy looking hair. And so you get this idea that she has a very similar look to the other victims who were identified out there, which is, you know, Laura Miller, who was identified at the time and also, uh, Heidi V Rall, um, who was identified at the time. And so when I first read this confession, one of the first things that I thought was aha, how would he know because when she's identified later you get the picture of her which definitely shows that this is a woman who had a harder life right you know um you can see how how skinny she is how um she's a little gaunt in the face this is definitely a person who has a hard difficult life Mm -hmm. and so when he's describing this murder it just seemed like he really was describing her right but then physically, physically describing right, her, right. and so it it started to to me. I was like, well, how would he really know that unless he had actually come across her? But then I started to delve more into you know other interviews he's given, other confessions he's given, and I've stumbled across the interview that he gave to the author of Deliver Us, which. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of you don't know, Deliver Us is a book on the Texas killing fields, which covers some of the victims that we have covered, um, on our podcast. And so if you're looking for more information, it's a, it's a great book, go and check it out. Um, but he gives this confession in more detail. Um, he talks about that he, um, worked for Robert Abel on Robert Abel's ranch in Belleville. And then that Robert Abel and him, you know, had this Kinsmith connection because they both, you know, had kind of, he could tell that Robert Abel had evil on his mind and um and that Robert Abel had a darker side so he's drawn to Robert Abel because he has a darker side and so he's kind of drawn mm-hmm. to this like
0: he sees something and he himself sees something in, in, in yeah. Robert mm-hmm.
1: um and then so then he says la- ro- later Robert Abel moves him to leak city and he tells this story about how he Robert Abel asks him about prostitutes. And so he goes out looking for a prostitute. He brings this prostitute back to the Stardust Ranch where both he and Robert Abel have sex with her. And then he's getting ready to take her back to where, um, wherever you know he picked her up. And Robert Abel comes out and says, no, I need more time with her. And so he leaves her at the property. And then the next morning when he comes out there, Robert Abel tells him that he has strangled and killed this young age Asian prostitute um and that Abel just kind of tossed her out onto the property and so he Mark being the hero in this decides to go out he gets the body digs a hole with the backhoe and he buries her on the property and then um and if this is true this is that is such an
0: odd thing to do let me just go bury your body Gretchen I mean you know you've done this let me go
1: take care of that for you I I mean that i guess you know thinking that they're these dark connected souls yeah um sick twisted uh evil a little bit um and so then then mark claims he went out shortly after that and he picked up another prostitute and this time when he's talking about that prostitute he's very much talking about some of the things that he talked about in their earlier confession that i had read to you earlier but timing wise this doesn't seem like it's 1991 so he's talking about how she's addicted to drugs and you know kind of um just doesn't like that she's almost telling him that she doesn't want to live anymore Mm -hmm. and uh so he strangles her and kills her and he puts her out there on the property then he tells, you know, then he basically goes and tells Robert what he's done. And and Robert apparently gets very upset at him and says, there are too many bodies on the Stardust Ranch. Um, and this is where Mark I is expressing how he felt like the Stardust Ranch was like, large enough for to put many, many bodies on and He didn't know why Robert was flipping out over two bodies being on there. And then surprisingly, he's like, he apparently had no idea that earlier there were three bodies discovered in this area. Um, mm-hmm. And he's just dumbfounded by that this to me is is just where some of this really falls apart i i find it surprising that this man managed to work on the stardust ranch right there and nobody mentions that to him right you know he's working with all of these ranch hands all of these different people who are coming to ride horseback and coming in there and you know he's hanging out with people at the bar and and other people and nobody mentions that (laughs) nobody brings that up it never comes out ever you know, um and I just I just I I cannot I cannot no. believe that he was that oblivious to this. No. And then, you know, the other part of this is that this isn't it's not like he suddenly gets to League City. It's not like he had a history of being in this area. Some of the other confessions that he makes of killing other women are in the Alvin area. And so it's, it's not like this is just all of a sudden he comes from Belleville here and he doesn't know anybody or know anything, you know, he has a connection to this area. Yeah. And so I just, I just can't believe it.
0: What is so crazy to me is this is just another person connected to this ranch too.
1: You know, that just, right. It's, almost unbelievable to me when he confesses and a reporter finally goes to Robert Abel and says, hey, this is what, uh, Mark is saying. Robert says, I recall Mark working for me, but he was too stupid to even string fences. So then what he says is that one of the last things that he does is a act of revenge from being fired because after he puts the the other prostitute's body on the ranch, Robert Abel sends him back to Belleville and then pretty much immediately fires him. And Sue, so he says, he's so mad and so upset that he goes out and gets a prostitute. And she's about the age of between 14 and 16 years old. He brings her to the ranch. He leaves her out. He, he kills her. He strangles her also, and he leaves her out there. And that she is discovered then as the Calder road victim. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I have to go back to this. Because these confessions don't seem to make a whole lot of um like they're so different in the two different tellings of it, there there are two things that that come out here. One is that if you believe what he's saying, then there are two more bodies out there on that area, which Tim Miller extensively searched for first right. that haven't while. been recovered. yeah, mm-hmm. that haven't been recovered that now are somewhere on property that is really, at this point being built up as single-family homes Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one but number two what we do know now that um this victim has been identified as Donna approved home she certainly wasn't between the ages of 14 and 16 years old and when you look at the photograph of her shortly before she passes you wouldn't make that mistake right you know that that wouldn't be something that you would like mistake her for 16 or 18 year old girl no so um and so I don't know I I originally I was very much on the board I mean I, I remember coming to you and saying I think this guy actually you know this makes actual sense right and the more research that I've done on it the less sense that it makes he does confess to killing or being involved in the killing of two other people. And I think it's important to talk about them because, um, they are really kind of those women who it just seems like sometimes that nobody cares. Yeah. They're
0: forgotten. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and why would you say something like that?
1: You know, right too. Like it does make you wonder, you know? Um, so one of the, one of the women that he talks about killing is, um, Benna B. Bowen. She was 27 years old at the time of her death. Her body was found in an asphalt road in Fort Bend County in April of 1986. And the other one is April Eves was 19 years old when she was strangled with a red ribbon used to tie her hair back. Her decomposed body was found in a trailer in June of 1989 in Fort Bend County. Um, so the April Eve's case he talks about to the author of this book quite extensively saying that her name was uh Champagne um and that it was actually a friend of his Bam Bam who both he and Bam Bam had picked up April um brought her back to that trailer had sex with her and that Bam Bam actually strangled her and that he found out about that and so he kind of closed up the trailer with some um stray dogs and then left the trailer. Um, and then, um, I think with, with Benna, uh, B Bowen, he does kind of talk about that one that he might be responsible for that himself, or might've been involved in that with, uh, other people. So one of the questions that certainly comes out here is why do you confess to a bunch of crimes that you didn't commit? Um, and so there is a police officer who believes that part of the reason that he's doing that is to try to get police to take him out um for a um to show him where bodies are to get more information from him um maybe even to take him into a county jail or something like that which would make it easier for him to escape escape. right so um the other thing that we do know about him is he did shoot this man, you know, because he was angry over being fired. So making up a story about Robert Abel, because he's angry over being fired, is not something that's out of his realm of the possibilities. Um, and then, you know, this is a guy who's serving a life sentence.
0: He's just bored. Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, I, it's
0: almost that revenge again,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I do think that you have to possibly consider that he did have something to do with one or all of these murders. One of the things that the police do clearly say is that he was able to pinpoint where this abandoned trailer was, and I guess where on this asphalt road, road this other young lady was found, um, and that these were out of the way places. That does make me pause a little bit. These are small towns and um it may take you a few minutes to figure out where these places are but it is not going to be that difficult Mm -mm. people know and they talk about it and if you know these communities you can find these places relatively easily
0: sure and these are even smaller at that time than they are now as far mm -hmm. as population so you know people are going to talk and if you're just like, we were talking earlier, riding home from the bar, you might be like, oh, Gretchen, that's where so-and-so happened. And, you know, and
1: then it's in your mind. So, And then the last thing that just, and again, we are not able to access all the records or, you know, haven't been able to access some of the records that we would love to have access to, to give us some of these answers. But what I do know is that. Um, Mark Roland Stallings was convicted in Guadalupe County of use of of a motor vehicle in August of 1989, unauthorized use of a motor vehicle in 1989, and was given a 10-year sentence, Um, and the sentence was longer because he had a 1985 uh, theft charge. It's surprising to me that he would be given a 10 year sentence and then out in 1991 in order to murder Donna Prudhomme. But again, we don't have any evidence to say that he was in jail or or in prison at the time of of Donna Prudhomme's death or not. Um, I think authorities would would have better access to that um and they have said or at least some authorities have named him as a suspect a possible suspect in Mm -hmm. this case and so you know they may be looking at things that we're not looking at but um it just gives you an idea of there may be reasons to doubt a little bit of what he's saying also
0: all right so um with that we'll go into the next suspect David Allen Walker. Now he's he's an interesting one for me.
1: So David Allen Walker is is one of those suspects that is not named by police. He's not somebody that has been named by Tim Miller. This is just somebody that in doing research that I've come across. And in 1984, he met a young woman at a bar called the Diamondback in Houston. He asked that young lady if she'd like to go out and see his new truck. The two went out to the parking lot, and when they got out there, he forced her into the parking lot and um, drove off in his truck with her. He took her to a field in Lamarck where he beat her extensively, raped her and then threatened to kill her she got loose and ran across the field as she's running across the field he actually shot at her several times luckily for her she managed to run to a nearby house and an elderly couple took her in and called the police when the police arrived they um she described the man to them and told him told them her his first name and they quickly the officer knew who the man was Not necessarily did he know who he was, you know, from dealing with him. He actually knew who he was because he knew who his father was. Right. So his father was actually a Lamarck police officer. So he was arrested the next morning. And when they searched the truck, they actually found her earring in the truck. At the time, he was on probation for a 1980 burglary charge. And due to that fact, the police felt that he would get a lengthy prison sentence but one of the things was they could not charge him with attempted murder because they couldn't find the gun so they only charged him with aggravated rape to the surprise of everyone he was only given a 10-year prison sentence this was his second felony charge and he's only given 10-year prison sentence no i'm sorry 10-year sentence of probation total of 10 years of probation and so for a, he, second for a second felony charge second felony charge and ag- and it's an aggravated rape charge so um where he kidnaps somebody takes them somewhere tries to kill them beats them extensively and um and he's given 10 years on probation pretty much from all accounts he manages for the next five years to avoid law enforcement and while on probation he lights his girlfriend's car on fire and even though his uh father being a Lamarck police officer could not save him from being sent away however again now this is a third charge, and so he only serves three and a half months and was released again yeah that that blows my mind. Uh, yeah, he may
0: not have the dad may not have been able to pull some strings as far as him being indicted, but he definitely had some strings to pull there. In my uh, opinion, come on,
1: it was come on. I, I I've got you. It blows my mind that uh, this guy was was managed to be out. Um, it was thirteen months later that on June thirtieth of nineteen ninety one, Priscilla Welch, age twenty one had just left work with three of her friends at the Baybrook mall. They went to a bar called the gold club. She was last seen leaving with Walker. Police believe that the two went in her car to his apartment where he raped and strangled her. He then loaded her body into the, into her car, into her car and dumped it in a field in Friendswood on the 2300 block of link road, abandoning her car nearby. Her body was discovered the next day by the jogger, by a jogger, and he was arrested three days later. Mm -hmm. He was tried and convicted of her murder in 1993 and was sentenced to life in prison. This is a little hard, too, because her mother, Sherry Welsh, was very angry that he was not charged with capital murder, even though the district attorney's office said they did not have enough. They did not have enough and did not feel that the case fit capital murder I've looked up the definition of capital murder several different times, and I'm not real sure how it doesn't fit. And again, I'm not a pro-death penalty person, but I, I, I'm still thinking that this is one of those cases where he is getting
0: a little bit of leniency. He's definitely getting some favoritism, mm-hmm. definitely you know we had talked about it earlier too if he had served any kind of significant time on the previous charges brought against him Mm -hmm. you know it may not have come to that point it may not because this progressively continues to escalate for him you know
1: through the the years right Mm -hmm. one of the things so there's a couple of things here one of the things that we know about the calder road victims is that we possibly have strangulation on the Colorado Road victims. We know that we have severe beatings, um, and that we have one victim shot in the back, probably while running away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his crime on the two victims that he is charged with so closely relates to this. Um, and that's why I bring him up as a possible suspect. He's also, from what we can tell during the time period that, um, these victims are murdered, he's out of jail.
0: Right. So let's just kind of clarify that a little mm-hmm. bit because we wrote, you know, we're going over this. So again, Laura Miller, right. September of
1: 1984,
0: uh-huh. he's out, he's out. We have Audrey cook, December, 1985. And again, he does appear to be out. He does appear to be out during that time. Heidi Villarreal October the 10th of 83. Right and from what we can tell he's possibly out now I mean up until this point there really hasn't been anything on him right right he's not Mm -hmm. hit a radar at this point right you know in 83 and then we have Donna Prudhomme again you know in July of 91. July of 91 what well that's when she goes missing
1: well it's when she's suspected of going missing right. we don't have a hard so there's not a hard date on Donna right. Brigham. if indeed somebody had contact with her in july of 1991 after the fourth around on the fourth or after the fourth of july okay then we can say for sure that he would have been in jail right that he would have been in custody of some point. but mind you she you know but that's an estimate yeah. july is an estimate of when when they feel like she went missing if she went missing at the end of june that would be right at the time that he also killed sherry and i don't think that it would be unheard of that he had had a victim a couple of days or a couple of weeks prior sure and, and think
0: about that i mean you're talking the end of june to july right, right. fourth time it's a week
1: yeah or even if he you know killed sherry and then picked up Donna the next night Mm -hmm. you know I think is is within the realm of possibility what we do know about Donna is that she certainly was visiting bars in the Seabrook area you know on NASA Road also and that does seem to be the stomping grounds for him Mm -hmm. well and mind you you know like NASA Road
0: where we're talking Kima area Mm -hmm. and Baybrook Mall is one exit Right, so right that's there, one exit. So bars in between, whatever. You're not talking a huge span of uh, as far as location. Uh huh.
1: And between Lamarque and Baybrook Mall, there's three exits. Four, Four exits, maybe. Yeah. Oh, definitely in between. Yeah, it's, called sure. our, it's called it's called field yeah, when you're on that border. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's another thing. You know, I mean, you really drive right by it and so if you're looking for a place and you've been there before it's not unheard of and like i said i i'm not 100% saying i think this is a guy who needs to be looked at this is a guy who um who's gotten away with a lot people have hidden things you know there's a lot of co- talk in in the cases of whether or not law enforcement maybe didn't do the best job we do know that law enforcement from lamarck was involved in the task force um on calder field and so maybe there were reasons not to bring up um him because of his connection to his father you know it's just i feel like walker there needs to be a no this is why he couldn't do it and i i feel the same thing with stallings too Mm -hmm. you know it's time for the police on the task force or galveston county or the da's office to come out with some real sure reasoning reasoning to say here's where we can say stallings did or did not you know he's he is still on the realm of possibility or he's not on the realm Mm -hmm. of possibility and here's why not and that can be for one victim or all four right yeah but if if stallings was indeed in in jail during the time that these victims went missing then i think publicly that they should come out and say that if if walker was cannot possibly be put into this then come out and say that you know, or at least come out and say that you've investigated Walker and you can't eliminate him, mm-hmm. but he's not even he's not even mentioned. Exactly. You know, this is this is something that you know I came across because I read an article about Tim Miller and his family, and on that same page is the is Walker and a story about him. And just putting the pieces together, we're like, why isn't he looked at? But the second part of this that I really think is very important is if you can rule walker out for the calder road victims then fine but can you rule him out for other victims along the I 45 quarter right because this guy has a history of picking up girls at bars or at, at wherever and and basically raping beating them and killing them exactly so yes he's only convicted of killing one person but if this other young lady hadn't gotten away, she would be a second victim. Sure. So easily. Easily. Mm-hmm. And we may not even be talking about her or knowing about her. We would possibly would have talked about her as a victim with no information in her case, like so many of these other cases, you know, where unfortunately the evidence is gone because they laid in a field for so long. and may not have even known has she not gotten away mm-hmm. exactly and so i think it's time to have some transparency these cases have gone on way too long without any transparency of just the quote unquote this is an open case mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: so you need to put new eyes on it yeah you no know, or focus you know a little bit more on some details in there you know and if robert
1: abel is no longer suspect in any of these cases i absolutely think that somebody needs to come forward to from the police department or the galveston county da's office and clear his name because really that's unacceptable also right you know if if you can clear him of these crimes um then that needs to happen too i know that he has passed away but he has family um and there are other people in the community who still look at him as being a very likely suspect. And the same goes true for Clyde Hendrick. If Clyde Hendrick is 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 only guilty of one crime, then the police need to come forward and come out and say that too, mm-hmm. and you know? say
0: you know this is why X Y Z. Yeah.
1: You know. So and if you can't clear him, then maybe we need to say that too. But somewhere, some transparency needs to come forward of what is still being done on these cases. We have four slain women laying dead in this field, you know, and that's not even to count the numerous amount of them that came before. Mm -hmm. So I think with that being said, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope you listen to our next episode. We'd love to get some feedback on what you guys think about, you know, our
0: likely suspects. Um, you know, definitely hit us up on our Facebook page, bodies in the bayous, um, and leave some comments. We'd love to hear it. And questions are
1: always welcome. Any questions that you have, you can message us on Facebook or, um, message us through, uh, any of the apps that, uh, you find us on. So let us know what you think or use our email. And as always, thanks for tuning in signing off.